0: This Bible study podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. He's writing this. It's clear that he's not a sailor because he doesn't have the proper nautical terms or lingo. But it's also equally clear that he had to have personally made this voyage because there's no way that someone could speak with such accuracy, with such precision, um, to know the kind of things that Luke knew and put it into that account if he hadn't actually lived through it. So he talks about how first they take this coasting vessel along the coast of What he calls Asia, what we would, when we think of Asia, that's kind of confusing for us, right? Because when we think of Asia, we think China, we think Japan, we think that corner of the world. And when they are talking about Asia, they're talking about Turkey. Um, So he's first going into Sidon, they're going under the lee of Cyprus because they're avoiding these contrary winds that are coming across. and then they kind of go across this open sea along Cilicia, which I kind of thought, oh, Paul's from Tarsus. I wonder what he thought as he was going past. So, oh, bye bye <laughs> Here's my home right there, um, way back when. It goes past Pamphylia to Myra and Lycia, and if you want to follow the map in the back of your book, you can. You'll notice that this town, Lycia, is directly north of Alexandria in Egypt. Now, Egypt um, was sort of being as Rome required so much grain to, um, they had a a kind of a deal where the Caesar would provide a certain measure of grain every day for all of the people who were citizens of Rome, not necessarily the poor. This wasn't like... food stamps, but this was for all of the people who were citizens of Rome, they were entitled to a certain amount of of grain every day. So that required a tremendous amount of grain exported, or imported rather, into the city of Rome. And so a lot of that came from Egypt. And Alexandria is this port city. It is just um, south of Lycia. So this would be a good place to meet a larger Egyptian grain ship, which is on its way to Rome, even though they're heading into a time of year when um, all of that trade is coming to an end because the weather is becoming far too dangerous with winter. From Myra, they do um, take an Alexandrian grain ship on its way to Italy. They go slowly and with difficulty off of, I don't know how to pronounce it, snitus, And the wind doesn't allow them to go further, so they have to take the lee side of Crete off Salome. And they continue again. They're just going along the coast because they can't head out into open sea. The winds are too strong. They can't do it. So they're trying to stay along the coast where the winds are not quite so strong. And eventually they end up at Fair Havens. Now, the normal route, if you're looking at your map, map, would have taken them south of Rhodes and north of Crete, straight across to Sicily. So all of this traveling is taking them more and more off track from where they should be for how people normally go. And the slow sailing time along the coast is wasting precious time, and it's moving them deeper and deeper into late fall. And so at this point, Paul says, look, don't go further. But the captain and the owner of the ship don't listen, because on on the one hand, this port of Fairhaven isn't a place they want to spend winter in, and they have a ship full of investment and a full crew sitting around. So they figure they'd rather try their luck and try and move on to Phoenix, where it'd be a little bit more fun to hang out during the winter, I presume. Maybe it's a bigger city, something like that. So the winds seem favorable, and they just go for it. And that's when this northeastern wind flies up. And this is a a common occurrence in there. This is how the storms of the area at that time um, happen. You have a, a strong wind from the north and the east. And the wind, you know, it's just completely changed direction, right? From this hard west wind, and then it was a soft southern breeze, and then all of a sudden, completely opposite from the north and the east. Too strong to face. And they can't handle it. They're just driven along by it. So we have these incredibly... Fascinating details about he talks about how um, they see oh here 's a little island let's let 's creep up on it, and then it just blocks the wind just enough they 're able to get the ship 's boat, which is kind of like a lifeboat. Um, these boats are, are when you 're going into a harbor, you need something like a little tugboat to take you to to and from shore because otherwise the ship is going to become, you know, grounded on sandbars or something like that. So they have this little boat that's able to, um, when they're in a harbor like that, take people to shore. They're able to get that secured and bring that up. Um, And from there, they realize they have just enough time to be able to try and do whatever they can to make the ship uh, secure in this storm. And so one of the practices at the time, these are all wooden ships, um, they take cables and they wrap them around the hull. They go underneath and wrap the, the hull of the boat so that it kind of holds it together. So it's going to um, make it stronger against the, the force of these waves. So they're able to do that. And then um, they reinforce the hull of the ship and then they said, um, fearing they'd be run aground on the surtis. Now this is a notorious graveyard for ships that's along the African coast. And you have to imagine they are going so fast and the storm is so strong, they're probably not even sure exactly where they are. And they just know we're going in the direction of Africa and we are going to end up just like so many ships before us um, in this graveyard of ships. So they end up lowering some gear, and this is one of those areas where Luke doesn't really know what he's talking about. They're just lowering something, and we're not sure what it is. Maybe it's an anchor to slow their progress, but they're driven along, and they become so violently tossed, they actually throw their cargo overboard. Now it's no longer a, a matter of, you know, whether or not we can make it there to, to bring our grain into port. This is, we are fearing for our lives, And we would rather come alive or come through this alive and not have anything to show for it, to have to lose all of this cargo than to um, keep it and end up having everyone die. The third day, they throw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. I think maybe as opposed to having it ripped off, which would be terrible, but now they're so desperate, they just toss it overboard. And for many days, they can't see the sun or the moon, So they have no idea where they are. They haven't eaten in days. All they've got is some grain probably that's left over from that cargo because they don't want to starve in the storm, and they lose hope of being saved. And it's at this point that Paul says, take heart. The ship is lost, but we will all live. An angel of the Lord to whom I belong and whom I worship came to me and told me, don't be afraid. You must stand before Caesar, and God has granted you all those who sail with you. Around the 14th night, a lot of time's gone by, right? But I guarantee you that every single one of those days has been equally long. It's around the, the hour of midnight, and they suspect they're nearing land. So they take a sounding twice, and they discover, yep, it is getting shallower and quickly. So they let down four anchors, and they pray for day to come. Now, I imagine that's not Paul praying. That's, that's the other sailors that are praying for day to come. And I'll get to that a little bit later. The sailors later then get really panicky and they hatch a plan to make off with the ship's boat, which would save them, but it would leave the ship without anyone who knows how to navigate or sail. So Paul quick tells the centurion and the soldiers, and they end up cutting the boat free. At dawn, Paul encourages them to eat. They dump the rest of the grain overboard. There's 276 people on board. And so they get everything ready to go. They release the acres, they hoist the sails, they aim for the beach, and they end up striking a reef or a sandbar. The boat struck, the waves are smashing the back of the ship to pieces. They're going to die within sight of shore, is what they're all worried about. And that's when the soldiers decide they're going to kill all the prisoners so that they can't escape. Thankfully, the centurion intervenes, and everyone makes it to shore. And then we also have another interesting detail. Once they get on shore, the natives are friendly, but Paul gets bitten by a snake, and miraculously, he doesn't die. Um, By spring, they just kind of waited out there. Uh, Paul is able to do some ministry while he's there. And at spring, they get on their ship, and all of a sudden, it's kind of anticlimactic. It's like when a storm suddenly just blows away, and all of a sudden, clear skies, birds are singing, the sun's out. Wait, what, what just happened? So they're able to get to Rome. Lots of believers come and meet him. Paul meets with the Jewish elders first, just like he does pretty much everywhere. And as always, some believe, many do not. And so Paul says that he's going to take the gospel to the Gentiles who will listen. And Luke's conclusion is, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. So as I thought about what to talk about today, at the end of this book, one of the themes that kind of kept coming back to me was the idea of ending well. Because Luke is ending this book. And honestly, okay, what I'm not going to talk about is I'm not going to talk about ending our Christian walk, our life, all of that well, because there's, there's so much better information from that in, um, in the epistles. But there are a couple of things, I think, in this passage that we can see. How does, how does Luke attempt to end the book of Acts well? How is Paul, as he's reaching his final destination, how is he able to make it there, faith-filled, to be able to hold out to the end? The first thing that I realized was there's this... Ending well means navigating the tension between the big picture and the little picture. And what I mean by that is... How can Luke spend so much time and details on the voyage to Rome and then cheerfully condense over two years of preaching while in prison in Rome into two sentences? And also, like, what's what's up, Luke, with what happens next? Does Caesar listen to Paul? How do the Roman Gentiles respond? Is Paul declared innocent or guilty? What happens? He gives us just such a, such a little bit of everything condensed. Well, part of that is because the big picture story Luke is trying to tell is not simply a biography of Paul's life. It's the story of the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so now we've reached that point where that has been fulfilled. Um, But on the other hand, Paul and Luke were friends. And for Luke, that shipwreck was one crazy ride that he had to go through. It wasn't just something that he interviewed people about. This was something that he lived. It was personal. And if you lived through that, I'm sure that you would probably go on and on and on about it too. So he can't help but go into detail about it because he lived it himself. And I'm reminded that God can see and handle both the big picture and the day-to-day intimate kind of stuff the stuff that matters to me this second, because I'm actually living it, and the stuff that is going to matter for eternity. Like right now, my drive into here facing traffic and stuff like that, that matters to me tremendously. That feels very real to me right now. But I know that five years from now, this particular drive-in probably isn't going to come on my radar, (laughs) In eternity, that's probably not something that is going to feel like it matters that much, but right now it does. But God can handle both of that because he cares for us now and forever. But of course, when it comes to my life, sometimes I really wrestle with this because I am an eternal spark in a here-today, gone-tomorrow body. I'm a nearsighted soul or a farsighted soul in a nearsighted existence. I find this tension shows up, especially in the middle of storms, because it's at this point that I begin to wonder whether the big picture ideas that I have about faith and God and who I am in Christ are still in agreement with the little picture experience of what I'm going through. So I find myself cross-checking, God, are you still there? Are you still taking care of me? Do you see what I'm going through? And are you planning on doing anything about it in the near time future? And I try really hard to explain my current little picture problem in the light of a big picture understanding, going, why is this happening? Surely there's got to be a reason for it, a lesson or a meaning for why I'm going through this. In fact, when I was prepping for this lesson, those were the kind of questions I found myself asking. What caused this storm, God? Why did you allow it? you who can control the wind and the waves. I mean, you wanted him to go to Rome. So was this like opposition from Satan trying to keep Paul from his destiny? Or what was, what was going on? I don't really understand this. Then I noticed something interesting. And it was that never, not once, do I find Paul huddled over in the bottom of the boat, moaning, why God, why? He doesn't waste time feeling sorry for himself or reproaching God. And as little as I sometimes relate to that, I think on a very practical level, Paul is on to something. It takes a tremendous amount of grace and courage to balance the big picture with the small picture understanding of our lives, especially in the middle of a storm. God always gives us just enough of the big picture information that we need to stay on course and trust in him. Because we have his word. We have the witness of other people around us who have probably been someplace kind of like we're in right now. And God often gives us a little taste, something very personal to let us know that he does love us. He is with us. And there's someplace he's leading us even if we can't see now. Just a little bit of manna that only lasts for today, but that's all it's meant to, be, to do. So now in the middle of a storm, this often doesn't feel enough. But the reason why that is, is because God is asking us to walk by faith and not by sight. So it's at this point where insecure as you may feel, as tempting as it may be, the middle of the storm, and I guess my experience kind of backs this up, it's probably not the best time to figure out or seek the big picture answers. Because let's face it, when you're in the middle of a storm, all you can see is right. what's in front of your face. That's all you can handle. So maybe we don't need to try to understand it all just then. By all means, take a snapshot of the big picture that God has already given you. Now for Paul, that was kind of specific. He had told him, I'm going to send you to Rome. He knew that. For you and me, it might be more general. It might be something in the Bible that we tend to discount because we go, oh, that's for everyone, but I want something just for me. It is just for you too. So take that snapshot and by all means, stick it somewhere where you can see it. Hold on to that in the middle of the storm, but then focus on putting one foot in front of the other, one day at a time, moment by moment. 'Cause that's what I see Paul doing. Each and every day through this nightmare of a storm, Paul is staying engaged. He's praying and listening to God. He's watching to see what the crew and soldiers are doing moment by moment. Because if he didn't, well those soldiers were gonna panic and they were gonna, you know, go off and do whatever they were gonna do. Paul was keeping abreast of exactly what was happening, and he was doing whatever small bit he could do to help and encourage. And that was enough. Secondly, and I won't go too much into this, but ending well, I think, requires us to acknowledge and incorporate stormy seasons into the calendar of faith. You know, why did Paul face the storm? Assumes that the storm is an anomaly. It assumes that God prefers to take the easiest path with no resistance. Where did I get that idea? The truth is this was winter. This was the stormy season. And when we talk about it in a metaphorical way, Paul probably knew more than anyone from the very beginning that his walk with Jesus was not going to be easy because Jesus told him that personally. But he also told him in a way that implied that Jesus was going to be there with him through it. And I think that's partly what helped Paul persevere through so much. Again, Paul doesn't even waste time asking why. He doesn't feel sorry for himself or reproach God for cursing him with a storm. He accepts that this is a season over which he lacks control. So he lives moment to moment in obedience to God. So how about you? What would it mean for you to accept that storms are a part of life? To not try to prevent or fight them all the time? To know that God sees them coming before you do? Would it help you not to grumble when that time came? Would it help you to stop blaming yourself for those storms, others, or God? And would it help you make peace with your circumstances and get through it a little bit easier? The other huge theme through this is just that God is so very faithful. Ending well includes this knowledge so that we can find a good balance between our engagement and our trust. Learning... That balance between, you know, is faith active or is it passive and resting? We realize that faith, the faith that sends a man out into the open world is the same faith that keeps him when he's chained in a prison cell. Faith understands we do what we can when we can and we let God handle the rest. I was a little bit stuck as to think about an an analogy for this and I went out for a walk yesterday and all of a sudden it just kind of came to me. um, That faith is kind of like a dance. In fact, I think you could even say that faith is a dance between Christ and his bride. And the reason why I say this is because good dancing looks effortless. The two partners look like they just magically know how to move in the same direction and respond without communication. They move as one. But back in college, I took some ballroom dancing lessons, and I learned day one that it is not as easy as you think that. It is not this telekinetic you know, bond between two partners. What really is happening, the first thing they teach you if you take dance lessons, is you have to learn the frame. Now, you have the male partner who is the leader he's the one who decides where you're going he's the one who kind of has it in his mind i want to do this move and then that move and i want to move you over here he's leading right and and the female is usually following but how she follows how she knows what she's doing from the outside it looks like that woman is just passively resting on her partner right she just has her hand on his shoulder she's just resting and he's pushing her along on the dance floor no, that's not quite exactly what happens. When you learn the frame, you learn that you have to, you put your hand on your partner and you have to have a certain amount of resistance of leaning into the partner. You don't just rest it passively like a limp rag. No, you have to, you, you have like a, there's actually quite a bit of, of pushing between you and them. You don't see it because there's no movement, but there is quite a bit of, of that um, pressure. So when you're leaning into your partner, what happens is it unlocks this sort of secret communication because you can feel in the shoulder muscles of your partner what direction they're going to go before their body goes. You can feel them turning. You can sense that. And so you're not just being oh, you know, pushed around. You sense you know where they're going to go. So that resting is actually a leaning into a partner. And you can feel when they're going to move. And just so, when we talk about resting in Christ, I think that also includes leaning into him, especially in prayer. And I think we know this because when the angel says to Paul, it has been granted to you. Think about that. It's been given to you. As in, you've been asking for something, and I'm responding. I'm granting to you the lives of the other people on the ship. So even though maybe it's a little bit of a stretch, I think that shows Paul was presumably interceding in prayer for all of the lives on the rest of the ship. Now contrast this where Paul is actively interceding for everyone else. He is listening to God, but he's, he's got that, that leaning into God in the moment. Contrast that with the sailors and the soldiers who go at midnight. They prayed for day to come. Now, first of all, what kind of stupid prayer is that? <laughs> Not only because day is going to come when it comes, whether you want it to or not, and it is not going to come one moment sooner. It it will come. You can rest on that. You can guarantee that it will come. But you probably can't influence how fast it comes. Um, But here's really why they're asking. They're asking not because... Day itself is going to save them, but because the coming daylight is going to give them their sight back. And when they can see things clearly, when they can see where that shores, when they can see what's going on, then they think, I can get back in control. I can do something about this. I can save myself. These people don't know what it is to walk by faith in the God who promised their safety, who already has promised their safety. No, they wanted to see again, and they only wanted to see because when they could, they could try to do something on their own about it. Lastly, ending well requires that we have some sense of our destination. And by that, I don't just mean where we hope we're going to go, where we're trying to go, where we want to go, but where we are going by God's grace. As I was studying this passage and kind of thinking about Acts in retrospect and that big picture for what he was trying to to tell us in this account, it suddenly occurred to me that the Great Commission, as Luke describes it in his account, he doesn't record it as a command. Now, the Great Commission, when we think about it, is the account in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. It says, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the Great Commission that we know that we've memorized, that we think of. But when Luke is describing this instance... You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from that on high. He does it in this roundabout way, about saying, it is written. These things are written. And what is written is that it's going to be proclaimed to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And then in Acts, he does it again. Chapter 1, verses 7 to 8, he, Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority because they were wanting to know when is all this going to happen? When is is Israel going to finally, all of these prophecies, when are they going to come true? Jesus says it's not for you to know those things, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I found that kind of interesting. What does this tell us about this book and how Luke understands his subject matter? It's an account of what God has already done. That's what the gospel is. He says, the law, the prophets, the Psalms said all of this about the son of God and he came, da, 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 and it was fulfilled just like that. Part two the Great Commission, this gospel is going to be preached, starting Jerusalem to, the, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, when the disciples are given the gift of the Holy Spirit, and it happened, da-da-da-da-da, just like God said. There's this sense that even in the situation where God hasn't yet fulfilled his promise, it's as though it has already been finalized. Because God has said it would be. There's no question. If God says it is going to be so, then it is. And I wonder if that was, if that shaped Luke's mindset. When he looks at the role of the church. When he sees the church and he sees what God has already done through Christ Jesus. And he looks at the apostles and he looks at the gospel and he looks at the great commission. And he says, well, God has said that this is going to be. And we are just living that out. We see, in Paul's case, how tremendously strengthening it was to encourage him to go on when God gave him a specific destination. You're going to Rome. I'm taking you there. And because I've said it, you don't have to doubt that when you encounter a storm. Because I've already said, I'm taking you there. So it's going to happen. We may not always have such a specific destination in our life. But then again, Paul worked for years without one. But I think that we can conclude that we all know the general destination God has for us. We have promises that we can be certain of. We can know that if we need it, God is not above giving us specific instructions. And that if he doesn't, we can carry on in the knowledge of the general ones. Either way, if God leads you to it, he will lead you through it. So do you know your destination? Do you know your calling? Do you know what God has already said about you? On Sunday, we were singing a song, and this was something on the way in here, that the song just, the words kind of came back to me. Um, Whom the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. I'm a child of God, yes, I am. In my father's house, there's a place for me. I'm a child of God, yes, I am. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. So as we conclude this study, as we look at the ways that where we want to, as we've reached an ending and we're reaching new beginnings, um, I just want you to keep that in mind. Remember what God has already said about you. Remember who he is. Remember that he's faithful to complete those things. And I pray that that would give you great encouragement and joy as you move forward heavenly father i just thank you so much for the study god i thank you for all of the small picture details that dr luke gives us in this account i thank you for all the names and the faces that we have come to know as we've read this book and i thank you god for the big picture I thank you for the way that the little picture supports the big picture, and the big picture gives meaning and direction to the little picture. I pray that you would do that in our lives. I pray that you would bless these ladies in their conversation today and in their as we move forward through the summer and, um, and on and on. Bless them in Jesus' name. Amen.